Yeah, so it's, it's good to be back here. Um, as Tony had mentioned, I launched out. It's, almost, it's been almost nine years now. It was um, January of two, 2015, I uh, moved to Austria. Calvary Chapel has a conference center in uh, Milstadt, Austria, and the Lord opened the door to go there. I, um, I'm actually a British citizen through my mother, British and American dual citizen. And at the time, before Brexit, we were in the European Union. So that was an open door for me to go to uh, the castle in Austria. And um, so I went there and helped out with that ministry. And I remember there was actually a, a blizzard. Tony took me up to the airport in Newark. And I actually left a day early because there was this massive blizzard that was coming back in January of 2015. And I remember getting up there a day ahead of schedule to the airport and checked into this hotel and um, just looking at all the snow coming down and the plows and everything. And I'm like, Lord, what have I done? And I mean, I, I had, a, I knew that God was in this thing, but sometimes you just, when you actually put your foot in the water, you start to like, wow, this is like actually going to happen. And so I went and I got on the plane and um, I went to Austria, and God had given me a word um, before I left from Genesis chapter 12 about Abraham. He said, the Lord said to Abraham, come to a place, you know, leave the place that you're familiar with and all that, and come to a place that I will show you. And so I always felt that in going to Austria, that was going to be for a season, and I spent there, I spent a year there, but I felt like God was going to open up something else through that. And um, so he did. I, I kept running into Pastor Dave Sylvester, uh, who heads up the Bible College and the church there in New York, and he invited me to come visit. And of course, having a, a British passport, British citizenship, the transition was quite easy. And I went there, and I found the Lord to be faithful. And you know, sometimes you're stepping out, and you think you hear the voice of the Lord, but there are all these practical issues. Like I, I had. I had a very secure job. I worked for the state of New Jersey before I left, and the whole future was secure, and I stepped away from that. And you wonder, um, you know, what, how is this all going to work out? And you find that the Lord is faithful, and all of his promises are yes and amen. And it's been one of the, the greatest blessings of my life to serve at the Bible College in York particularly. We have some great young people and some older people, actually, who have come through as students. We just had our graduation this past Friday night, so I'm a little bit jet-lagged. I just flew in yesterday, so so I might be a little crispy, but sometimes things are better that way because, you know, when we are weak, the Lord is strong, and it's not about us. We're just the vessel that, that he uses, so praise God for that. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I just finished my 15th semester at the Bible College. We had some students who, who graduated and, you know, just thinking about what God has done. And we've had some really quality this past semester, I think, some really quality st students. The, um, a couple years there, it seemed like there weren't any guys coming. We had a semester right after COVID where there were three guys and like 16 girls. So I guess if you're a guy, that's a good thing. And, but we were praying like, Lord, where are, where are the, the men at? And God started this send men again. So we just had 11 guys this past semester and I think something like 18 girls and all that. Um, and they've just been really quality students. They've, they're, they're, they've been serious about the word of God and just 
it's this semester especially it was a really great blessing. We had students from Israel. We have this relationship with um, the Joshua Fund, if you're familiar with Joel Rosenberg, and there's a scholarship program where um, ex-military is Israelis actually come to Bible college, young people, and they're some of the, the most serious, some of the best students, and they kind of bring a level of maturity to the, the student body. And um, yeah, so uh, to also, we we have the uh, we just took a group of students to the the British Museum this semester in London. You get on a train in York, you can be in London in an hour and fifty three minutes. They have the British libraries right by King's Cross Station, and they have these incredible manuscripts. You have a, a Gutenberg original Gutenberg Bible, Wycliffe Bible, Codex Sinaiticus, if you're into the whole uh, biblical documents and all that sort of thing. And of course, about a fifteen minute walk from there is the British Museum, and there's just incredible um, artifacts there that support the biblical narrative, you know, as far as the ancient Near East and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so it's, it's just a great blessing to be in um, York and serving the body of Christ there. Also serving in the church, I get opportunities to teach in the, the church also in addition to the Bible college and um, to do go through the worship rotation and all that. We have this... Um, we have a Friday night young adults group I've been leading worship at. And just looking around this group, you have, you have there's someone, there are people that represent Lebanon, uh, South America, per, we have Peru, Brazil, and then you have Brits, and there's a guy from Thailand. And you just look around the room and you have the body of, of Christ, kind of the whole world represented in, in this room. And our church is, uh, York is a university town. We have um, York University and then York St. John's, two universities. So we have about 28,000 university students in, in the city of, of York. And um, just all people from all different, many nations come to our church, and it's a great uh, blessing. If you ever happen to be in the area, stop in and say hello. If you happen to be in York, England, it's a great city and all that sort of thing. It's a spiritually charged city, and we're going to look at a passage today Actually, we're going to look at a, at a verse in, um, let's see, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verses 8 and 9. We're, the main message is going to be out of Acts chapter 19, but the Apostle Paul, he makes this statement. He's in the city of Ephesus, and he makes this statement. He writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, and one of the things that he says in chapter 16, verse 8, he says, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And this is like the city of York, and this is like many cities in the world, because it's really what the world is. The world is, generally speaking, hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but God has crashed into this world. His son, Jesus, came and died on the cross for our sins. And there's this whole church that has been born. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So York is a spiritually charged city. Many places in the world are spiritually charged cities. You see the work of the devil happening all over the place, but you see the work of the Lord happening as well in the middle of that context. So um, let's just take a minute and, and pray before we go any further. And so, Lord, I thank you that you are alive and well, <laughs> and that you are with us, Lord, 
and that you have given us your Holy Spirit that we may be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Thank you that you have given us your power, O Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you would uh, be with this message today as I deliver it, Lord, that I would be uh, less and you would be more, Lord, that you would be great in our midst today and in the midst of your word as it goes forth. So we thank you for that. So this, um, this verse here, I was thinking about this verse a while back, and you have the Apostle Paul here, I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so how did this door open? Well, the door opened for Paul to go to Ephesus in 52 AD, actually, on his second missionary journey. If you remember, he was, of course, he had his miraculous conversion, and then in Acts chapter 13, um, you have the church in Antioch, and the church in Antioch, the church was born in Jerusalem, but Antioch becomes kind of this Gentile hub where people are coming and going, and there's prophets and teachers who are there, and uh, Barnabas comes to Antioch, and he recognizes, you know what, this city is a place that Paul of Tarsus needs to be. So he goes to Tarsus, and he brings him there, and it tells us that they're praying and fasting and ministering to the Lord, and it says, the Holy Spirit said, separate unto me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. And then, of course, you have his first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas go out. And here we have his second missionary journey um, in 52 AD, and he's there with Priscilla and Aquila, and they spent a year and a half in Corinth. And then he goes to Ephesus, and he senses something in his spirit that God wants to do a work, but he feels like he has to go back to Jerusalem to keep the coming feast, which is probably Passover. And then if it really is God's will, he can return to Ephesus for an undistracted season of ministry. And sometimes maybe you sense that God is doing something, but the time is just not right. So you kind of do the other thing. And then in God's timing, he brings it around. And that's what happens here with the Apostle Paul. So he, he leaves Ephesus he lands at Caesarea, goes to Jerusalem for the, the feast, and after that, he reconnects with his home base of Antioch and spends some time there. And if you look through the book of Acts, um, Antioch is a place that Paul was sent out from, and periodically, as he goes out on missionary journeys, he comes back and he shares what the Lord had done in the previous season of ministry, and he spends some time there, and then he goes back again. Well, this is one of the times here he, he reconnects at his home base in Antioch, spends some time there, Acts 18, 22, and 23. From there, he launches out on his third missionary journey, and he goes through the cities of Asia Minor, modern-day uh, Turkey, and he ministers along the way. And then when we get to Acts chapter 19, he returns to Ephesus, and now it's a season that is right. And it's a season that God is going to move, and he's going to do many uh, incredible things during this season. And uh, Acts 20, 31 tells us that he was actually there for three years. He writes, as I mentioned, he writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, <clears throat> and this is where he tells them uh, about this great and effective door which has opened 
to him. And we'll talk about that door in a minute. I'll just say a few words about Ephesus. It's uh, in Asia Minor. I don't have a map here, but modern-day Turkey along the, the western coast there. I was actually blessed to have been able to go to Ephesus some years back on a, um, uh, a Footsteps of Paul tour, and we went to Ephesus, and we spent a day there. Um, it was the home of the, the Temple of Artemis or Diana. Artemis was simply the, um, the Latin or the Roman name for, for the god Diana, Diana being the Greek name. And basically, the, um, when the Romans came to power, they kept all the Greek gods, but they just, re, they just gave them ro Latin names or Roman names. So Artemis, Diana, um, there's this temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world there in Ephesus. And it was a, a pagan city because the whole world was pagan prior to Christ coming, right? Uh, it was a pagan city, and it was given over to, pay, to pagan worship, and it was simply the world under the sway of the devil, like many cities in the world today. We know First John 5, it tells us that, and we know that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. And that's, that's the testimony of what the world is. But the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him. And he's given us his spirit, as many as us who have believed in him and have received his Holy Spirit. So it was a city that was given over to pagan worship. It was a spiritually charged city, as I mentioned. The devil was at work, but the Holy Spirit was also at work. So what do we know about this open door, this great and effective door, and who or, or what are the adversaries? And, and that's really what I want to talk about today. You can actually go through Acts chapter 9 and pick out uh, specific aspects of this open door, and you can also see some of the adversaries that are at work in the midst of that. So the, the first thing that we see, you have, we'll actually go through a few of them, and then we'll come back and break it down. So we're going to see 12 men there who are referred to as disciples, uh, and it seems like they're ready to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to go deeper in their walk with the Lord. There was also an open door for Paul to spend three months in the synagogue and to reason from the scriptures that Jesus is a logical um, answer to what the Old Testament scriptures prophesied in terms of what the Messiah would look like. There was also uh, a door that opened for him to spend two years in the school of Tyrannus with a group of disciples there preaching and teaching. The door was open for healings and other miracles to happen through Paul. The door was open for effective gospel ministry and presentation, which led to many turning from witchcraft to embrace Christ and to burn books that were very valuable, books where it wasn't until, uh, what was it, the 16th century, really, that movable type was invented. And before that, books were basically written by scribes, by hand. And so this conversion evidenced by the burning of uh, witchcraft books to embrace Christ. Um, also, the, the, the presentation of the gospel led many to turn to Christ and stop buying the silver shrines of um, Diana or Artemis. And of course, there are many other things that Luke doesn't record 
in this chapter, when we look at the scriptures, especially the gospels and the book of Acts, what you do is what you get is a slice of the pie and you get a representative sampling of many other things that would have happened. The, the, the book of Acts, there, there were many other things that would have happened on the various missionary journeys, but we get this representative sampling. Um, so these things that we can actually see in the book of Acts pertaining to the open doors that were presented. Um, yeah, so with these open doors come adversaries, and, and we'll look at those also. So let's start out. We'll look at this first open door, and this is chapter 19 of Acts, verses 1 through 7, and it says, It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were, were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on, the, on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. So here you have these, this group of 12 men. It's interesting, the, the number of 12. Uh, you know, it's the number, you have 12 tribes, you have 12 apostles, and here we have these, this group of 12 men who have believed and received John's baptism. And what was John's baptism? Well, John the Baptist, he, his message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And also, he looked at Jesus and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he identified that that is Jesus, the one Lamb. You know in your, your, your history of Israel, there were thousands and thousands, if not millions of lambs that were sacrificed from the time that the law of Moses was instituted, even really before that, all the way up until the time of Jesus, millions of animals were sacrificed. And here you have John the Baptist pointing to his cousin, Jesus, saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away, doesn't simply make temporary sort of atonement, but takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist identified him. In the book of Hebrews, it says that by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And that's what Jesus has done. And so these men, they, they, they have basically, I believe that they believed that message. They've believed what John had to say about it's time to repent because the kingdom of God is here and Jesus is the one to be believed on for the forgiveness of sins. But he also begins to pick up on something. You know what? It's, they've received John, John the Baptist. You know, we've believed on him and all that. But Paul is like thinking, you know what? It seems like there's something that's missing in their walk and that is power. There's evidently some sort of a lack of power and all that. So Paul asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And to which they respond, well, we haven't even heard that there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. And then they're evidently, they're willing, so they're, 
they're baptized in the name of Jesus, and then the, he lays hands on them, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's this incredible thing, and it's this thing that is necessary to effectively be a witness for Jesus Christ in the world today, to have the Holy Spirit in operation in your life. And, and this is one of the great blessings. This is one of the, my favorite things to talk about because it's basic Christianity. I teach um, two books that I teach quite regularly at the Bible College are the Gospel of John and the Book of Acts. And all, I love the whole, all of the scripture, but these books just really um, bring out some of the basics of Christianity that no believer in Jesus Christ should be negligent of. And that is that there is a source of power that we have whereby we can show the world that Jesus is alive, that he's the way, the truth, and, and the life. And I mean, you can talk all day trying to intellectually persuade someone and all that, but if you have the Spirit of God in you, you know, Jesus said of the Spirit in, in John's Gospel that when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So there's this work that's happening oftentimes when we're sharing the gospel with people or living a Christian life before them. There is our actions and our words that are hopefully anointed by the Spirit of God, but there's also a work of wrestling that the Spirit of God is doing in the hearts of un, un, the unbelieving world, which they can either reject or, or yield to. And so these, these 12 men here uh, get prayed over and they receive this. And, and I would like to, um, without diverting too much from chapter 19, but this is a big part of it, you know, Acts chapter 1-8 is the birthright of Christians. It was promised by Jesus to his followers, and we see that it was received in the book of Acts. And so when Paul asks these men this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Well, what are some of the characteristics that are representative of the fact that you have the, received the Holy Spirit? And of course, you, you can um, look to tongues, and that has become overly dogmatic, um, that that's, has caused division and all that, to say that it is the definitive sign that someone has the Holy Spirit, because not at, Paul said, do all speak in, in tongues. Evidently, not everyone does speak in tongues. But there are things, I believe, that are hallmarks of an individual having been filled with the Holy Spirit. And first of all, I think that there's a boldness that um, isn't necessarily part of who you are in, in, as far as your makeup and kind of the person that you are. I mean, there's type A people, there's type B people but God wants to fill them with his Holy Spirit and, and do something that's more like a type C, actually, um, which isn't natural. It's supernatural. And so there's this boldness that comes from knowing God and being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a sense that God is working through you and directing you. I mean, I've had, I do in, in York, um, I do what I call accidental evangelism. And I always tell people, you know, I definitely don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm introverted. I don't like to, you know, I, I don't go up and initiate a conversation with people and that sort of thing. But I always find myself, myself, especially in New York, because it's a pedestrian society. Everybody's out 
walking or riding bikes and, and that sort of thing. And I find myself in conversations with people. Someone will stop me and they'll, they'll ask if I know what time it is and I'll tell them. And they'll say, oh, your accent, you're not a, from around here, are you? And, and then it opens the door for me to share about the Bible college. And then I ask them, well, do you believe in God? Have it, what, is, how, what do you think? How did we get here and all that? And God just leads me in these conversations. And I, I kind of steer them to the things of the Lord. And I share the gospel in about, I can, in like two to three minutes, I can very quickly share the gospel going all the way back to Genesis about the fall of man and all that, and, and then how God sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, and he rose again, and all that, and, and sent his spirit. And, and, and then I share my testimony with people. I do that in like two or three minutes, sometimes longer, depending on how long they're willing to talk. But people are quite open. And I, I walk away from some of these situations after I've had a conversation with people, I'm like, man, that was the Lord. I was just, you know, going to the store to buy some eggs or something like that. And then this whole kind of thing unfolds. And it happens over and over and over again. And there's this sense that we can get that God is working through us and directing our lives. You know, as you go, he just, there's these supernaturally natural things that happen. And I believe that that's a sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Another sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit is a love for God and his word. I mean, I, I remember growing up in the Catholic church, went to Catholic school and, and all that, and the first commandment, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, soul. And I remember thinking of it like that, like, you know what? I mean, I believe in God and all that, but I just don't seem to have that sort of thing. Not that I'm opposed to it, but I just didn't seem to have that kind of deal going on inside of me where I love God with all my heart, mind. So I loved me and, and, and all that and things that I wanted to do. I didn't really, I couldn't say that I really loved God, although I wasn't opposed to the concept of it. But I just did not have the wherewithal because I had a stony heart rather than the heart of flesh that came when I came to, that I received when I came to believe in Jesus. Um, so there's a love for God and a love for his word, a love for the scriptures. This is the testimony, and this is the book that we live by. And I remember um, when I came to Christ in, in January 1990, many years ago, uh, I was, you know, I was, I was a mess. I was a mess. I was smoking pot and drinking beer, stocking shelves at the 34th Street Acme and all that. And, and this one day, I just, I mean, the Holy Spirit had been wrestling with me. And this one day, I had come home, work in the graveyard shift and all that, and I went to sleep, and, and I woke up, and I'm washing dishes by the kitchen sink, and just feel his, the weight of God's conviction coming down on me, and I remember capitulating my will to the lordship of Jesus Christ, of which I had previously given intellectual assent to, but it was at this point that I surrendered my life to his lordship, and I was filled with his spirit, and my life was changed. And I came to the awareness. I just had this sense from God that, you know, the witness of the spirit, that he is the author of this book. And I would open, you know, before it was like, I had tried to read the Bible before that, and it was like reading Shakespeare, you know, nothing against Shakespeare. But it was like that. And then all of a sudden having the spirit of God inside of me, and you open it up, and it's like, 
He has given us an understanding that we may know him. I'm like, oh my goodness. I have that understanding in my heart, and this is your word. So a sign of having his spirit, a love for God and a love for his word. Another sign, I believe, is having a love for people. And I was never like a, a mean and nasty dude or anything like that. I think I was a nice guy before I was a Christian in my sinfulness and all that. But I was indifferent. You know, I, I didn't have a, I wouldn't say that I had a love for people. I didn't, I definitely didn't have the agape love of God in my heart for other people. But when I became a Christian and when I was filled with his spirit, I started to have a genuine concern for people and to recognize, I mean, I remember walking on the, the boardwalk some years back in Ocean City, and I remember just like looking at all the people and I was thinking, you know, of the verse in Revelation, anyone whose name was not written in the Lamb's book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I was thinking about that verse and I'm just walking down the boardwalk, I'm like, book of life, lake of fire, book of life, lake of fire, book of life, lake of fire, and all that. And, and what, I mean, what is my life? What is your life? What is the, the sum of what, we're, of what we're here for? I mean, there's things that we can do, do with our lives. We can, and God isn't against pleasure and enjoyment. I'm not trying to do a guilt trip and all that. But what matters in our lives? And what do we really, you know, Proverbs, it says, he who is watered, she who, or wait, he who waters will be himself watered, and it applies to the ladies also. So, uh, so if, you, if you're watering, you will be self-watered yourself. And, you know, it's this, it's this thing that God does where by his Holy Spirit, we have a genuine concern for people, you know, for their temporal, you know, needs and all stuff like that, whatever, but really that they would come to know the true and the living God and be partakers. You know, like John writes in um, the justification for his first epistle, he says, uh, I write, he says that, um, what am I trying to think of? Scramble up jet lag here, just momentary, it's coming to me. Um, I write to you that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. So there's this fellowship with the, that we can have with other people, and it's because we have Jesus inside of us, the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that is in me is in other believers, and there's this core of connection that we have. So um, my, my list here, the fifth thing, uh, evidence that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit or have received, if you want to call it the baptism of the, the Holy Spirit without getting too dogmatic, a, a holy life. And there's a conviction that, not a sinless perfection, right? The one who says that he is without sin is, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But there's this holy life that the, whole, the Holy Spirit inclines us to. And there's this work of sanctification. And I remember reading in, um, I forget if it's first or second Timothy, but as a new believer, and I was living a particular way as a new believer, and I remember reading this verse, it was in the NIV in, First or Second Timothy, anyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from iniquity. And I just felt this conviction, like no, nobody had to tell me that, well, you have to stop smoking, drinking, swearing, and just whatever, all these other things. But there's this um, work of, of sanctification that begins to take place when we come to know 
the Lord. And as we are yielded to the work of his Holy Spirit. Now you can, the Bible tells us that even as born-again believers who are on our way to heaven, we can quench the Spirit or we can grieve the Spirit. And we certainly don't want to do that. We want to do whatever we can to, to um, I hate to use the word nurture the, the work of the Spirit as if he had to be nurtured, but we want to, we want to point our lives in a direction that will be conducive to his filling us, turning our cup upward. And, and I mean, it's like if you know the Lord and you know you're going to heaven, why wouldn't you want to just, Lord, fill my cup, point your life in that direction. And if you know his calling for your life, point your life in that direction and recognize the things that, are, that would take you away from that. So these 12 men... And Paul recognizes, you know what, these guys, these are good guys, and they believe in Jesus, but there's something that's just missing here, and I think it's the Holy Spirit, so I'm going to ask them, and he prays over them, and there, there's this, um, we don't know, we know that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues and whatever, all that. Th their, um, their specific work is not chronicled in Acts, but I can only imagine in a pagan city, you let 12 people who are filled with the Holy Spirit loose in that context, and God will lead them into all different kinds of ministries, and they'll go out to the surrounding areas, and ministry will just happen. And if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, ministry will happen in your life. You don't even have to plan it. I mean, you can prepare. There's some element uh, legitimacy to preparation. I mean, that's what we have this Bible college in England, and the discipleship program that's starting here, right? So there, there's definitely something to be said about that. There's a context, and, and one of the things that Paul does, he has the school of Tyrannus that we'll, we'll look at in, in a minute or so. But this, um, this work, you know, it's like God has invaded this pagan city with a plan. Um, okay, so the next open... so. There's no apparent immediate kickback, talking about the open door with the adversaries. We don't see an immediate apparent kickback against that, but based on what happens later in the chapter, there's this kind of crescendo that general, that, that is like rising up of opposition, and it doesn't really let loose until later in the chapter when there's this riot in, the, um, in Ephesus in the, uh, in the theater there. But we'll look at that when we get there, Lord willing. So... Um, the second open door that I want to look at is verses 8 through 10, and this is Paul's ministry in the synagogue. And we know that in the book of Romans, it tells us that, uh, you know, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God, the salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So Paul, throughout his ministry in the book of Acts, he always goes to, usually goes to the synagogue first and reasons from the scriptures, and then when that door closes, he'll go out to the Gentiles or whoever is willing. Here, uh, it seems like um, he goes to the synagogue as the second place that he goes to. Uh, he goes in there, and he went into the synagogue, verse 8, and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt 
in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews, or rather, um, let's see, yeah, both Jews and Greeks. So there's this open door in the synagogue, and he goes there, and he speaks for three months, and think about what you can accomplish if you have a, a listening if people who are willing to listen in the period of three months, that's what, like 12 to 14 weeks approximately, maybe, I don't know, four or five days a week, just going over and over again, okay, turn to, um, let's look at Genesis, let's look at Exodus, let's look at the prophets, and they're, they're probably going to like Isaiah 53 and Psalm uh, 22 and different passages like that, and he's showing them how Jesus is the reasonable explanation for what we see in the scriptures. And he spends three months doing that. That sounds like an open door. Other places, he goes into the synagogue, and there's a riot right away. Like, I think in Thessalonica, he's only there for two or three weeks, and then they have to move on because of the, the opposition. Here, there's this three months, and thinking about a great and effective open door, well, that's part of it here. Um, the adversary... In the synagogue, it tells us in the, the beginning of verse 19, it says, but when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed. So not everyone is going to receive the gospel, and some people are going to have hard hearts, and I've encountered that. There's some people who are kind of open, or maybe they procrastinate, and other people, they're just, you know, they just put their hand up, don't even talk, don't even mention Jesus to me. I don't want to hear it. And so here um, you have these, this group of people in the synagogue, and they speak evil of the, of the way before the multitude. So they go out on Facebook or YouTube or whatever, and they broadcast it that, that Christianity is evil. These are bad people. You want to stay away from them. And they put a spin on the message of Christianity. They say that it is evil they call it good evil and evil good. Maybe you're familiar with that, and, and even, I mean, in the world today, you, you certainly see that. Um, but this is after three months, three wonderful three months of preaching the gospel and sharing the Lord, and this simply leads to the next open door, which is the school of Tyrannus. So what does Paul do? It says that he departed from them and withdrew the disciples. So those who have believed, he takes with him, and he reasons daily in the school of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, two years, so that all who dwelled in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So um, he, what does he do? He simply changes venue from the the synagogue to the school of Tyrannus, he takes those who have believed, and now you have this group of people who want to hear, and they want to be discipled, and they want to go deeper in the things of the Lord. So he, he sets up, he basically, it seems, sets up something like a Bible college in the school of Tyrannus, and it mentions the disciples. It was probably quite likely the 12 who had been filled with the Holy Spirit, but also believers from his synagogue ministry, and this group of people who want to know more about the scriptures. So what was the school of Tyrannus? It was some sort of lecture hall that Paul was able to use probably during the hottest time of the day. One of the, uh, one of the commentaries indicates that it would have been available from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. where people would have a, a midday meal followed by a siesta in the hot climate. 
they uh, they still do that today in Spain and Italy in certain places. And so Paul probably worked his own trade. We know that he was a tent maker or some sort of a leather worker, and he worked that trade um, quite likely in the morning, perhaps, and in the evening to provide for his own needs and the, the needs of others. And in midday, he would teach the Bible to disciples, those who wanted to hear the word of the Lord. And this lasts for two, two years, this kind of season of ministry that is set up. And ministries definitely have times and seasons. And um, an example of that, you're familiar with Oswald Chambers. He wrote my utmost for his highest. Well, he actually set up a Bible college in London that was, uh, it was only active really for four years, and they had about 106 students, I think, that came through there, and 40 of them went on to be missionaries. And then World War I broke out, so it, they were forced to close it down, and he actually went to Egypt, and then he wound up passing away from appendicitis. But that was a ministry. You think of Oswald Chambers. Imagine going to a, a Bible college run by Oswald Chambers, and it was four years, and that was it. It was opened up. Okay, it's, it's a season, and it's done. And just because God um, does things, it doesn't mean that it should necessarily be kept on life support forever. You know, some things, okay, God is, Lord, what are you doing next? What is the new season? And so Paul moves on after the, the two years he does that. Um, we have a testimony of the effectiveness of his ministry during the season in the school of Tyrannus, this open door. It tells us that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So he's teaching in the school of Tyrannus, but people are coming and going and they're going out to the towns and villages. And you think of the 12 men who are filled the, who were filled with the spirit. They're they're going out, and it was during this time that other churches were planted from Ephesus. They, you have the, the Church of Colossae, the Church of Laodicea, and Hierapolis were all um, established during this time. So, so that's the next open door. Uh, the, the next one, actually, this, um, the miracles that were done by Paul, verses 11 and 12, this opportunity for ministry here. It says, now God works unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So a couple things here. The, the scripture tells us that these were unusual miracles that God worked by the hands of Paul and even by his sweatbands or whatever that he was wearing. So not necessarily normative New Testament doctrine, although God certainly still does miracles and he still does healing, but the way that it was done, we shouldn't take this and say, well, you know, take my sweatband and throw it on them and they'll be healed and that sort of thing. So you can get, you can get goofy and, and all that, and we don't want to do that. But um, it seems that Miracles, well, it tells us that miracles were done by the hands of Paul, some in person, and perhaps some remotely as he worked and prayed. And, and I think here we see God redeeming Paul's time where, while he's engaged in secular occupation, and he's still ministering, and God is somehow allowing these things, these aprons and all that, to, to be 
perhaps points of contact for people's faith, not to be confused with the, the relics sometimes that we hear of, especially in the medieval Catholic Church and all that, where you have like the, you can go to Budapest today and in St. Istvan's um, cathedral, they have the hand of Steve, it's supposed to be the hand of Stephen. It's kind of like Thing, you know, from the, is that the Adams family or something? And um, yeah, so I don't know, people get weird and, and you go beyond what's written in the scripture and it's just weird, so... Um, it's interesting though you have it says that you have this display of power there, on one hand there's the display of the power of God to heal and to deliver people from demons as the word of God is going out and maybe God is allowing this to show the Ephesians that his power is greater than the false magic that is being practiced there as, as we'll see in these next verses, we're going to see this, um, an example of Ephesus being a spiritually charged city. You have these seven sons of Sceva that are being held up in contrast to Paul's spirit-filled ministry. And it says in verse 13, it says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered, he said, Jesus I know. And what kind of voice was that? It must have been a really creepy voice. He said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And these men who tried to use the name of Jesus without having a, a relationship with, with um, him. And Ephesus, we know that it was a center of, of magic and the occult. And uh, it seems that instances of demon possession were fairly common. And that's just the sort of thing that goes along with pagan worship. And, you know, people open themselves up to all sorts of, of, of things when you know you get involved in in the occult and all that so there were evidently quite a few demon possessed people in the in the ancient world in the ancient near east we know from first corinthians that gentiles worshiped and sacrificed to pagan gods which ultimately had demons behind them first corinthians 10:20 the things which the gentiles sacrificed they sacrificed to demons and not to god and because demon possession was fairly common, and no one likes to have a demon-possessed person around, right, there was somewhat of a demand for exorcists. And so you have the, the seven sons of the Jewish priest Sceva, they're, they're trying to do it, trying to do this exorcism. And there are, there's, you know, outside of Christianity, there are, I've I had this weird thing happen to me um, in York. So I walk quite a bit in York, and there's a, the river, the River Ooze, um, flows kind of right between the, the city. And I went down there, and one day I was walking, and I ran into this guy, Robert, who was a um, kind of like a street person on and off of drugs who would come to our church, and, and we've prayed over him and all that. And so one day I'm walking down by the river, and there's this guy, Robert, and there's another guy with him, and he's like, oh, Paul, you have to pray for my friend Ma Masum. And there's this Muslim guy, Masum, and he said that he was possessed by many demons, and he had this really wild look in his eye and all that. And 
I asked him, I said, well, would you like for me to pray for you? And he said, well, you can pray for me, but just don't pray in the name of Jesus because I want a Muslim exorcist. And it was kind of weird, this weird thing. And so I figured, okay, I'll, I'll pray over. I pray over him, and I just kind of said, in, in the name of Jesus, like under my breath, like <laughs> all that. And, you know, so as not to offend and, and that sort of thing. And this was like, this was before COVID. This was like maybe 2018, something like that. And um, after COVID, this was probably sometime last year, I, I was walking by the river, and they have these benches I like to sit down there and read sometime. And, and I sat down on the bench, and I looked to my right, and right as I was looking to my right, Masoom was on the bench, and he was looking to his left. And our eyes just met. I was like, Masoom. And then he said, hey, how are you doing? And he, he, he came over, and he sat on my bench. And we started talking and all that. And he said that, you know what? I've been doing better. I think now I only have one or two demons. And, and I said, well, would you like for me to pray for you? And he said, well, well, you can pray for me, but just not in the name of Jesus. And then he said this weird thing. He said, you know what? I've heard there's a story in the Bible about a man um, who was demon-possessed, and they would bind them in chains, and he would cut himself, and he would break the chains. And, and can you tell me about that story? I said, well, sure. And that's in, um, and it's because Muslims, they, they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that he's a prophet, but they don't believe that he's the Son of God. They don't believe in his deity and all that. And he wanted me to read this story to him. So I turned to, and I'll just turn there very quickly so I don't misread it because I'm crispy and jet lagged here. But um, in Mark's gospel, we have this account of the story. I'll just read it real quick. Uh, then they came, chapter 5, verse 1, then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and, any, and uh, neither could, oh yeah, and the shackles broken in pieces, and neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is the important part. Verse 6 here, it says, When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And so here I'm reading this to Masum, and he asked me to read the story. And in the story, it says that this demoniac comes and calls, he worships Jesus, and he calls him the son of the most high God. And it's there. And then, so I said, do you want me to pray for you? And he said, yes, but not in the name of Jesus. So I prayed for him again. And I said, you know, Jesus very quietly under my breath and all that. And I haven't seen him again. This was probably about maybe a year ago, something like that. But um, yeah, it's a spiritually charged city. And, and there's this, here you have these uh, Jewish exorcists who are, trying to cast out a demon. They're trying to cast out a demon. It says they take it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who are possessed. So to them, it's just another incantation. It's another trick in, in their um, whatever, in their, their toolbox. And the evil spirit answers them back, Jesus, I know, because the demons would have known Jesus from before they had fallen out of heaven. And they knew that Jesus was the 
the Son of God, and, and that they're like, yeah, uh, subject to him. And they're aware of Paul's ministry, two different words, um, gnosko and epistemi, depending, or rather denoting their, their level of knowledge of Jesus and um, Paul. But they say, who are you? you? You do not, you have no authority. And that's, you know, nobody has authority over demons that doesn't know Jesus and isn't filled with the Spirit of God. So anyway, it says that they, um, the result of it is that they, they flee um, naked and bleeding and all that because they don't have a relationship with Jesus and they try to, but this actually highlights, we have this account and it highlights the ministry of Paul and the ministry of Jesus Christ in the city of Ephesus as we look at verse 17. We'll try to wrap up quickly here. Um, verse 17, it says, this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them. Fear fell on them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified because they recognized that, um, that many were healed through Paul, a man who knew God, and that a group of men who did not know God tried to use his power and were attacked and beaten. So what is, it, what is the result? It says that it became known, and fear fell on them all. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed produced this fruit in keeping with their belief. It says that they confessed, uh, telling their deeds, and also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it was totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed, this open door. And you have the kickback and the opposition, but there's this open door where the, the gospel goes forward. Um, you have, yeah, these people who are, are turning, and there's this evidence fruit. Just like in the beginning of Thessalonians, Paul talks about their conversion. He says that they turned from idols to serve the true and the living God. And that's really what marks a, a genuine conversion, where you turn away from idols and you embrace Jesus Christ. It causes people to believe and confess their deeds. They repent from sorcery and witchcraft. The, these expensive, valuable, handwritten books, they burn them. And there was a trade that had grown up around this, and people were getting saved and turning from these things, and it, it affects the local economy, and this will come to a, a, a swell in, with the riot in, in the, um, the theater. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The power of God is not connected to sorcery or witchcraft. It's high above those things. There's a great, in, in, um, when the children of Israel come out of Egypt, and Moses comes out with them, and all the signs have been done, and the plagues upon um, Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes out to meet Moses, and Moses tells them about all the things that had happened. And Jethro says, now I know that in the very way that people behave proudly, God was above them. God was above them. And God is above all the stuff that you see happening in the world today. Don't be distracted and don't forget that we've been given power from God to live in this world and to serve him effectively. And I've said this other times that I've been here, 
but you know the devil wants us to grapple with him and get all messy and and all that and you know there are certain not every battle is is our battle there are specific things that god had called us to do i mean you can pick a fight with the unbelieving world any any day of the week and all you'll do is get messy and dirty and all that and it probably won't be a good witness in the end of the day but there are those days that the fight is going to come to you and God is going to say, okay, I want you to step in and engage this by the power of my spirit. An example, David and, and Goliath, of course. David could have picked a fight any day, any day of the week, but this particular day, he's just making a cheese delivery. His father, Jesse, says, take these cheeses take these cheeses and give them to your brother and take these provisions, give them to the supply sergeant and all that. And he just happens to go on this particular day and, and he sees, you know, fee, fi, fo, fum and all that. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That, that, wasn't, that wasn't an insult, but it was a statement of fact because circumcision was the sign of the covenant and Goliath was outside of the covenant because he was uncircumcised. He didn't have a relationship with the true and the living God. And this is really important that we, our hearts have been circumcised and we've been born into the family of God. We have his spirit. And we, our rock is not like their rock. You know, the world has different things and devices and and schemes and all, all that, you know, like it says in Daniel, we have perfected a sinister scheme and, and all that. Well, fine, that, that's all good. But we have Jesus, the rock of ages, the rock of ages. And, um, yeah, so kind of running out of time here, uh, other things to say, but um, we know there's a riot that happens. And as a result, it's interesting, Paul was already making plans. You can read the rest of the chapter. Paul was already making plans to go to the next place. He was already, okay, I sense that we have done a good work in Ephesus that will endure, and so let's make plans to go to the next place. And while that's happening, then there's the riot that's instigated by, instigated by Demetrius because the, um, the sales of the shrines, the statues to Diana, are in great decline because so many people have come to faith in Christ and they're not throwing their money away on garbage anymore. And... Because of that, there's this, he's come and they've turned the whole world upside down. And, and it, it tells us this crowd, it says that most of the people didn't even know why they were there. You know, it takes just a little bit to stir up a mob and, and all that sort of thing. And so you have this great and effective door. And you can go through, you can read this. I would encourage you to read this again this afternoon or sometime. But look at all these open doors and this these powerful kind of incursions of the Spirit of God into what had been the devil's territory. And many people come, come to know the Lord as a result of that. And Ephesus actually becomes, you have Jerusalem where the church is planted, and then you have Antioch, which becomes kind of the Gentile hub. But Ephesus becomes another place where many people go, go out. And Paul spent three years there, and you have people coming and going from there also planting churches throughout Asia Minor. And Forty years later, John writes the book of Revelation from Patmos, and the church is still there. It's still doctrinally correct. There are a lot of good things going on. He has to give them the admonition, you have left your first love. But um, 
yeah, it's interesting. You also have Ephesus, uh, or not Ephesus, you have the book of Ephesians. And it's interesting that chapter 6 of Ephesians is about spiritual warfare. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. And um, so this spiritually charged city, God doing a work, opposition from the enemy, nonetheless, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail. So, um, yeah, more things to say, but if, if there's anything that you need to know, and I'll go back to the, the 12 men, you know, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Because that's what you need, that's what I need to be effective, to do anything in, in the world, to be, how do you be the, we're not the aroma or the fragrance of Christ because we can win an intellectual argument or win a point in a debate. That doesn't make us the fragrance of Christ. We are the fragrance of Christ because Christ is in us and his supernatural power is flowing through us. The love of God is flowing through our lives and, and there's this power that, that he gives us. So if you um, feel that you don't have the, the Holy Spirit working in your life, ask someone to pray for you because Jesus said in the Gospels, he said, how many of you being, he uses the word evil, like fallen sinful parents, if your child asks you for fish, bread, um, and egg, how many of you here have a rock kid or a, a scorpion or something like that? That's like the food, people's world, the people's food the world over, eggs, bread, fish, all that. How much more will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who, who ask? So ask and you will receive. Ask in faith, receive in faith. Ask someone to pray for you. I'd be happy to pray for you, Tony, and anybody who's a, a you know, yeah. Um, and I believe that God will give you his spirit. And if you feel that, you know, there's just like a trickle and you want more of his Holy Spirit. D.L. Moody was once asked, I think it was D.L. Moody, why, if you, I thought you received the Holy Spirit when you believe. Why do you, why are you always asking or praying, to, whatever? He says, well, I leak. And we do. We have a, you know, we ebb and flow. We have good days and, and bad days. There are, are times where we just feel dry, but ask and you, you will receive because we have to walk in his power. I mean, I don't, I sit in the Bible college in New York and I tell the students, you know, I was just drinking beer and smoking pot and then I got saved and here I am 30 something years later sitting in this chair in the front of a classroom. But how did that happen? Well, it didn't happen because of me. I mean, I, I yielded to the work of the Holy Spirit and took measured steps of faith as they were presented. But it's, it's the work of God at the end of the day and we need for it to be a work of God and not of us. And that's what people will not be able to deny. They'll, they're going to look and they'll say, man, that God must be real. God must be real. And he is. So, Father, I thank you.